welcome to the first episode of the British Empire in History and Memory podcast. I'm Jack, I'm interested in colonial Indian history, and I'm joined by my fellow students today. Hello, I'm Will, and I'm interested in ancient Greek and Roman history. Hi, I'm Adam. I'm interested in British imperial history, Soviet history, as well as Cold War military history. Hello, I'm Billy, and I'm interested in British imperial history. Hi, I'm Teddy, and I'm interested in colonial history in the early modern period. Hi, I'm Tar here, and I'm interested in British military history, particularly in the 20th and 21st centuries. Hi, I'm Josh, and I'm interested in early modern, early medieval history in Europe. Today, we'll be talking about the Battle of Omdurman and its legacy in both contemporary and modern contexts. Through this podcast, we seek to shed a light on the vast impact and the legacy that little wars, such as the Battle of Omdurman, have had on British society since the peak of the British Empire in the late 19th century. Teddy, would you like to give us some contextual background to the battle? Yeah, of course. Um, the battle was essentially on the base value. It was a battle that took place on the 2nd of September 1898. It was fought between two armies, the Anglo-Egyptian army and the Mahdist army. Um, they were led by uh, Herbert Kitchener and Abdallah respectively. Uh, the Mahdist forces had around 52,000 foot soldiers compared to the British, um, who had 25,000. Um, however, the, the results of the battle were quite breathtaking um, regarding the casualties. Um, the Mahdist army suffered 10,000 losses uh, in terms of deaths. 13,000 prisoners were taken, 5,000 were wounded, compared to the British 47 dead and 400 wounded. This was in large part due to a weapon called the Maxim gun. Teddy, that um, statistic you've just given me is um, is quite interesting. The uh, the difference between 10,000 dead um, compared to the British's 47. Um, you, you mentioned as well about the weaponry. Can you explain more about the impact of, of the, these modern weapons? Well, the Maxim gun was, was pretty revolutionary for its time. Um, it was one of the first, if not the first, um, fully automatic weapon. Um, that meant it fired rounds like repeatedly one after the other as compared to having to pull the trigger once for every shot um, and that had absolutely devastating consequences um, in this battle and was the main reason to why the Mardis suffered so many so many casualties. So, so what sort of weapons were the were the Mardi using? The Mardis were, were using very very basic weaponry so swords, spears, um, shields, stuff that stuff that you'd need to get very close to use. Um, so yeah, the British were a huge advantage in obviously needing to not having to not get um, close to the Mardi forces. They could just literally sit back and, and shoot them. So talking about Omdurman uh, more specifically, uh, how was the news initially received from the British public? Um, I think a, a key point to note with the reaction is um, something that was known as the Sudan sensation. Um, and now what this was, was a full-blown countrywide sensation in response to the apparent victory at the Battle of Omdurman. Um, and so it's quite interesting to note um, what actually motivated this Sudan um, sensation. And so I think it's quite important to place the Battle of Omdurman into the context of other battles. Um, so such as British campaigns in uh, the likes of South Africa, Zululand, and even in Sudan in the 1870s and 1880s. Um, and so the key difference between these battles was that, um, as Teddy's already established, the British only um, uh, received 47 deaths in the Battle of London, whereas with the um, South African campaign, the British received um, thousands of deaths. 
Um, so a quite quite important uh, point that historian Richard Fulton um, wrote in his book, um, Sudan Sensation in 1898, was that few casualties meant that the war and the army could be celebrated as an entertainment, um, which I think is a quite important point. Following up on what you were just saying, do you think it'd be interesting to question the motives behind both campaigns then and comparing them? Um, it could quite possibly. I mean, in terms of the motive of the Battle of Omdurman, um, or sort of what many of the public um, saw as the reason for the Battle of Omdurman was sort of um, to seek revenge for the death of General Gordon. Um, and so General Gordon was uh, killed in January 1885, um, went out on a campaign. Um, and so he was quite a prominent figure in British society. And so a lot of people attributed the victory at the Battle of London to um, seeking uh, revenge for his death, which I think is quite, quite important. Well, on that note of, um, of General Gordon, he, he was sort of um, he sort of eulogised. I think that's the right word. As a, as sort of like a, a biblical figure, um, uh, you know, sort of sacrificing himself um, for the greater good, as it were. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, there was there were a lot of um, war correspondents who called Gordon the Soldier of Christ, um, and actually called him a, a British martyr. Um, which I think links in quite well with sort of the way in which he was eulogised um, and what you were saying, yeah. And I, I think the, the public opinion on, on this was enhanced as well when uh, Queen Victoria spoke openly about her personal sadness at the news of the death of Gordon after his achievements and dedication to serving the country. And I think that would have uh, really heavily influenced public opinion on the need for uh, avenging him and, and perhaps could have been an ulterior motive to actually engage in the battle and why it was so widely celebrated when uh, the British uh, victory was reported back home. Billy, that's an interesting point you raised there, mate, because I've uh, some of the research I've been doing, uh, including Gallagher and Robinson, some prominent uh, figures with regards to British imperial um, scholarship, um, they, they claim that um, this theory of formal and informal empire, whereby British imperial influence isn't official um, on a governmental level, but is still de facto... Um, within certain nations and, and regions. So for example, in Northeast Africa, in Egypt and in Sudan, um, they claim that individuals such as Gordon were, were pivotal in um, Britain gaining influence in these regions. And so um, you saying that Queen Victoria was, um, was so focused on the implications of his death, shows that individuals such as Gordon really had um, quite an, an important role in not only empire building, but um, in leading on to the atrocities such as Omdurman. I found an interesting article in a newspaper um, from the time and uh, it's saying basically at the funeral of General Gordon, which was performed um, in, in Sudan shortly after. It was the first time anyone had ever seen Kitchener cry. Um, so it's sort of, a, it's like the, sort of similar to the Queen's uh, elaboration of her feelings towards Gordon Kitchener also uh, showed the same sort of uh, sadness. I think I think something to note as well is sort of the prominence of the British military, especially the British army in society at that time. Um, now contrasting to sort of modern day, um, where it's not as prominent back then, the British army was a key foundation of British society, um, especially with sort of 
the expansion of the British Empire, the main way for that was through the British Army. Um, so I think definitely seeing a high-ranking officer from the British Army sort of showing their emotion like that um, is is quite quite poignant as well. And just just going back to sort of press, because um, we spoke about press releases before. Um, I'd like to note that back then in sort of the 19th, 20th century, the only way in which the literate public gained their information of the British Army abroad was through the means of the press. Um, so this ultimately meant that because the press were sort of lionising the British Army in the sense that they were showing them as always heroic um, and that any sort of defeat was completely tragic and everything like that. So. The British public had this sort of mindset and perspective of the, of, um, the army as a very positive thing. Um, if you want to contrast that to modern day, obviously it's not only the press that we get our information from, we get it from social media or the fact that there is so much information that is um, free to the public to access. I think um, the restriction of um, access to information and the route of only being sort of through propaganda and the press is quite quite key in, in motivating the Sudan sensation as well. Uh, so would you suggest that the press was perhaps monitored to some degree? So I, th I think one of the reasons why they were so positive of British military campaigns is because of the commission that they gained. So war correspondents, and there was a group of war correspondents known as the Specials. Um, and so they were paid very highly, not only war correspondents, but also um, war artists as well. And so they were they were paid very well for for their work, and so that was sort of the motivation for them to be quite positive and supportive of British military campaigns. And then, as I said, because that was the only means of information by the British public, their mindsets and their perspectives were then reflected within British society as well. I think um, two two of those um, journalists you were talking about, uh, Ernest Bennett, who was. Um who's working for the Contemporary Review, and then also Bennett Burley as well, who was, who was, they were two of the journalists who were present at the battle, who reported yeah. on it, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, so, I mean, and it's also, there's that sense of trust between the public and the war correspondents, you know, because as, as you said, those two war correspondents were there present at the battle. So back then, would, as I said, there'll be a sort of trust of, of them portraying everything in the way that happened. And so I think that's also another reason as to why they would, sort of reflect the same mindset of war correspondence. I don't think it is simply trust that they have with them, but um, it's the idea of British pride and just the idea that they can't do any wrong because of all the great strides that they've done up to that point. So with previous campaigns and also with the, their industrialization, just another victory seemed inevitable. And so natural pride and then furthermore, the trusting of the press just will add to it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree with that as well. And especially the point of pride, um, it was very much the way in which the press set it out was it was very much the British are the good guys, the enemy are always the bad guys. And the way in which they demonised the Mardis was in such a way to instill a mindset that everything that the British did was always for the greater good. Um, so pride definitely came into it. And I think there's also, if we want to talk about Gordon again, you know, as, as, as we said before, it was the, the, the whole idea that this sole battle was 
in revenge of Gordon's death. Okay, so having looked at the contemporary reactions and responses, um, how would you say that the battle and the British Empire in general have been remembered uh, in British society today, both at a local Southampton level uh, and a national level, for example? Well, in Southampton specifically, on-demand is really well commemorated and represented. Um, so there are many road names, specifically Omdurman Road and Khartoum Road. So one is named directly after the battle, and then other is essentially a location um, in the Sudan um, that the British were involved in. Um, there are also other commemorations, specifically of General Gordon, who is sort of living in Southampton for 20 years on and off. Um, he would sort of come back to Southampton when he was on leave. Um, so there's a pub named after him, the Gordon Arms, and also a specific memorial uh, for General Gordon. Um, so yeah, those, those, those road names and also the commemorations of Gordon um, that are very specific examples. Um, I think it's also important to note that Southampton, as, a, as an actual city and as a town, was very important in British history, specifically during the British Empire. As a port, uh, and the British Empire was being so like, reliant on the Navy, um, uh, so a city such as Southampton was really important during that time. Um, Southampton also goes as far back as like the 15th century, also back to like medieval times, um, where Henry V almost led the English um, to France during the Hundred Years' War. So it's important to also mention how important Southampton is um, in terms of British history and the British Empire and why almost these things have been commemorated. Um, Teddy, you mentioned the um, the two roads, uh, Underman Road and Khartoum Road. Um, they're both uh, surrounding the the Avenue Campus, which is where we go for our history degree, and um, where we would go. Um, do you think this is significant in any way? Um, I definitely say so. Yeah, I mean, as a history student, to be surrounded by almost roads that are named after, you know, battles that took place during um, the Sudan campaign. Um, it's, it's quite interesting to see. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, whether that's for better or worse, that's like up for debate. But mm. it is, it is in, I think it is um, important that it is located directly near the campus. Well, should a battle um, such as this be commemorated as extensively as it has been in Southampton? Um, if we're going to talk about commemoration in the modern day, you have to look at the, the battle and why it would be commemorated from, uh, from two major points. First of all, the reason the battle took place was in order to, do, to defend Egypt's southern border from the Sudanese, um, in order to secure Egypt and defend Britain's economic assets in the form of the Suez Canal and the, uh, the highway from the UK to India, which was... Um, Britain's primary uh, economic source during the empire, and um, and so firstly, the reason Omdurman took place was in order to in order to secure a colony, um, which in itself would limit the freedoms and liberty of of the of the Egyptians and um, the Sudanese, which is, in, you know is is in direct contrast to what the British government um, you know advocate for in their modern foreign policy, freedom, liberty, and democracy. Um, so in the modern in the modern context, I think that is that would be absurd to uh, to commemorate it. But also, you know, more more directly, the battle wasn't a battle; it was a slaughter. Um, the British troops lined up uh, a lot of machine guns and just slaughtered thousands and thousands of Sudanese. So I think, from a modern perspective, I think commemoration would be of it in any way would be just absurd. Okay, and uh, have we seen this type of commemoration um, on a more national level rather than just in Southampton, more specifically? Um, 
Well, you could argue that um, there has been some commemoration on a, a more uh, national level, um, particularly with uh, Winston Churchill's statue in Parliament Square, because he's actually very relevant to the Battle of Omdurman specifically, um, as he actually fought in the battle as part of the 21st Lancers, who were highly praised at the time. And he later commended the battle by posting an article in the Morning Post on the 29th of September, 1898. Um, in the article, he refers to them as savages. He dehumanises them to the everyday reader, um, sort of as a means for justification for conflict against them. By referring to the Sudanese as savages due to their lifestyle was pretty typical at the time um, of British imperial views, but obviously is totally unacceptable in today's society. And this sort of further accentuates outrage felt by people today as these so-called influential figures who held these views are glorified and celebrated as seen with the, the Churchill statue that I mentioned in Parliament Square that was actually vandalised during the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests in London. And I think this really emphasises the shift from contemporary views on British heroes such as Churchill who were idolised by the public and the, the demand for change in the present day as societal views and attitudes have changed significantly and the views that he held back then obviously hold no place in today's society. I'd like to go a bit further as well because I, I agree about sort of how figures um, in the contemporary society were sort of idolised with their actions um, and I've got a scholar um, called Michelle Gordon who takes various different images that were taken at the Battle of Ondeman because the Battle of Ondeman is quite well known for having sort of the first um, images and even attempts at film um, for a British colonial conflict but um, what Michelle Gordon does is she takes these images and tries to explain or tries, tries to revision um, sort of the attitudes that British society has. So she talks about the fact that these images are examples of atrocity photography and that the way in which they've been captioned is in, a, in, in such a way to try and sort of um, instill a mindset of uh, patriotism and stuff like that. Whereas actually, if you look at it further, you know, these these images are actually showing sort of horrific things, you know, I mean, especially with what Kitchener did during the, the Battle of Ondeman, you know, he's known for having bombed the Mahdi's tomb and, and, and the treatment of the Mahdi's remains. And, you know, there was there was poor treatment of, of the wounded um, and of prisoners, whereas Kitchener was actually at the time sort of idolised um, and, li and lionised. Um, so what she does is she actually says that, well, at the time, it was it was the pride that sort of made them overlook um, the atrocities of these battles, and it was it was the pride, especially at avenging Gordon's death. It was this pride that therefore made British society sort of neglect how badly um, the British actually acted um, at these battles. I'd like to sort of elaborate on to his point um, that. In that, uh, I remember I read the same article by by Michelle Gordon, and um, she said that Kitchen had to write a letter of apology to the Queen for um, blowing up the tomb and sort of celebrating that fact. Um, so obviously, the Queen Queen Victoria wasn't particularly happy with this. Um, yet at the same time, she she uh, received an album from um, Omdurman, the Battle of Omdurman, of all the dead soldiers, injured soldiers, and. Uh, you know, she's quite happy to receive that so it's sort of she demonstrates the duality of of British uh, reception maybe do you think that's uh, significant in any way 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, it shows that at the time there were some sort of disputes at the sort of um, the morality of the battle. You know, there were there were people who were there who stated that uh, the conflict at Omdurman was not a battle, but an execution. You know, the, the, the fact that there were people, especially um, Queen Victoria in, in her position, that recognised the wrongdoing, but it's the fact that it was overlooked, which is much more important um, to, to sort of analyse and look into, I think. Um, I think a short point to make as well on this, um, just to sort of bring it back to a more modern setting, is that do you think like the lack of technology at the time and information technology specifically was was reason for this duality of public view? Whereas now there's there's like so much so much access to technology and information. So you have like social media and things like that. We, we sort of mentioned it in the first half of the podcast. Um, do you think that in any way has contributed to the polarisation of characters such as Churchill, like Billy mentioned, and you had like the 2020 Black Lives Matter protests where where Churchill's statue was vandalised. Do you think the um, the growth and the adaption of information technology has contributed to this polarisation of not just on demand, but the British Empire as well, more broadly? Yeah, 100%. Um, as, as, as you said, we've already identified the, the growth of technology as well as sort of the dissemination of information um, and how easy it is to um, gain access to sort of the objective information um, as to speak compared to sort of the contemporary the contemporary times where the only means of information of the British armed forces abroad were through the press and obviously the press got commissions for their work and so on and obviously there was censorship as well so there's a, there is a huge huge difference um and a huge impact that technology and social media has because I mean as you as you've already established sort of I mean, this is this is shown by the Black Lives Matter movement. You know how something over in the US can then have a huge impact on um, sort of actions in the United Kingdom, um, and that was all with the power of social media and technology. So it definitely has played, uh, in my opinion, a, a huge role in uh, the sort of revision of attitudes towards British colonial history. So just to play devil's advocate here um do you think that the fact that we have so many different news sources with their own separate opinions could uh, lead to more misinformation being spread about the legacy of empire for example over the somewhat monitored press that they had at the time of the battle um well like with anything there's going to be positives and negatives to each approach of course having having just one uh, news source for the entire country and you know i think uh Tahir mentioned it was you know commissioned press uh, so it was financially incentivized by the government. It's, it's going to be, have its drawbacks because it's going to be singing the tune of, of one of one party, one government, or one one you know stance as to towards the empire and towards the battle itself. So that has its negatives. But equally, you know, having all sorts of empire, uh, you know, information about empire and imperialism and the atrocities, you know, flying around on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, you know, some of which might be you know, historically speaking, completely inaccurate or, or just misleading to perhaps cater to an agenda is equally as damaging because people, we you know, a lot of young people in particular um, have access to things like TikTok, Instagram, and they see all these all these posts and information on there, as I'm sure, you know, uh, all of you lads have seen and everyone and anyone listening to the podcast will have probably seen something themselves like this. It's just 
there's so much information out there that could indeed be flawed or inaccurate and it can really it can have a serious impact on on perceptions of, of this kind of thing yeah, especially if they see for example someone who they idolize kind of having a certain opinion they're more likely for example um kind of support along with them rather yeah, than kind of being open to, to more other like, uh, more accurate possibly opinions yeah absolutely especially people like celebrities and, and people in limelight and you know like that sort of thing if they, if they come across with a certain political opinion or agenda a lot of people will just see that and that'll be enough so you know it, there's so many different avenues at the minute that, that can impact what people think and it can be a problem uh, as much as it was a problem back in the day of Omdurman where there was only one news source uh, what do you think though gents what were we thinking well, you know, I, I guess I, I, I agree as well. I mean, all it takes is for someone who has a relatively large following to create a post, state one thing and have the correct format to make it look sort of legitimate and then post that. And then there are so many thousands or millions of followers will then go, oh, right. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's that's mad. You know, that's and it's literally so easy to do now that misinformation is. I mean, sadly, it's something that's so common, um, especially with um, the political atmosphere that we, we have at the moment um, and sort of the, the events that have happened so far. It's just so easy to do. But then, then on that note, I, you know, I'd, I'd much rather uh, a community or a society where there's, there's too much news about than too little, I guess. I'd rather, I'd rather have to sift through potential rubbish and than you know have completely doctored information um, i feel like not not everybody's gonna have the same mindset of your, mindset as yourself of willing to put the time in to actually go through and find the the correct and sort of true information a lot of people are just going to see something and go oh man like i can't believe that's happened and then spread it either share it on their own social media or go and go and talk to other people about it you know a lot of people unfortunately nowadays because of I mean, you can attribute to social media and, and many other things, but have come become quite lazy in the sense of trying to find true information. So yeah, right. yeah. I, I think I think you've got a good point there, Tahir, because it's it's it, we're kind of at the minute what we're discussing is an idealised world of of political opinion, you know, because if we're going to go to the one extreme of having one news outlet, whether that was just back in the day of empire, or even if we're going to look at uh, you know authoritarian governments that have just had you know one news source that is pro-government and you know anything opposing is going to be you know criminal etc that sort of case that is equally as damaging potentially as uh, as then uh, you know on the opposite side of the spectrum whereby there's so much out there and there's you know there's there's going to be um, we have to remember the majority of the population won't have the interest in this sort of thing as necessarily you know we would or the listeners of this podcast would so this sort of ideal that we're kind of discussing at the minute right in the middle is, is going to be hard to you know get everyone on board towards and and you know that's just how it is and so that results in in, in you know these high profile social media platforms being able to harness their, their their you know their position to really impact what people think and as well i think uh what, what hasn't been mentioned yet uh, as as history students, we show an interest in this. We actively look look for information and and different things. And like we wouldn't mind sieving through perhaps if there's loads of different opinions or information. But uh, younger audiences as well. I think that's where social media is um, is it, quite is quite dangerous because younger audiences who perhaps do not have access to the information that we do will take things that they see online for gospel truth. Yeah. And it's easy. 
who knows, um, they might be sitting around the dinner table and say, oh, I saw this thing online, I can't believe this. And their parents who might not have known about it as well will adopt that as well. So I feel like it's just easy for perhaps, um, I don't know, not not entirely accurate like news to be spread around, um, spread around people that aren't, as in engaged or have the facilities that we do. Just kind of looking at the other side to, to more traditional news sources, for example, like certain newspapers, um, they've had their audience reading their opinions for years now. Um, their readers will therefore have a, almost like a bonded trust with that outlet and would take that information, as you said, um, Billy, uh, like it's the gospel truth. And that's uh, where we can sometimes see these clashes of opinions as a result of people having different news sources. I think that sort of also links back as well to the, the Black Lives Matter protests. And then you had that that response from like nationalist uh, groups mm. such as the EDL. That that's almost the the nature of debate nowadays that social media has created. It's just extreme polarization of two sides. It's like if you believe in this, or if you don't believe in this, then you must be on the other side. There's no mm. sort of grey area or middle ground anymore where people can sit down and actually debate contentious issues. It's just you're either with me or against me, and that's it. There's, there's just such polarisation in these debates now, and I think that's, that is really well emphasised with the recent um, Black Lives Matter protests and then the subsequent response from nationalist groups. Following up on that point, though, I don't think like we should just consider social media but also not neglect the fact of uh, popular culture had on both the effects of pro and against such events. Because even um, you'll have certain films such as Zulu from 1964, which even though it was a South African campaign, it does idolise British imperialism. And then you do have the contrast in more modern days with more anti-imperialistic views throughout cinema and series, which reiterate this idea that's pushed on social media, even though it may seem trivial to some extent, it does push these boundaries of having a more uh, restrictive point of view of it and it makes it more well criticizable from a global perspective instead of just being british it's open to the whole world to be able to look into currently yeah i, I agree and also i suppose as people are, are now getting a voice that before didn't so sort of um the people that were colonized are now able to sort of speak out and say actually that wasn't right we didn't enjoy that whereas before with you know back in the 1890s that attitude just wasn't wasn't voiced i mean it, it probably did it well definitely existed but it just wasn't it wasn't voiced in britain and america so people weren't aware of the other side i guess yeah i think that's it i think people weren't aware of the other side all they saw was the glorification of britain and the uh, the power and the, the economic and military power and might of britain and uh, empire on which the sun never set etc etc so i think what the modern day has has done as time's gone on whether it's technologically uh spurred or you know whatever reason whether it's just uh changing the attitudes because of education or whatnot but um i think the, the the bottom line is there is now access to the other side of the argument which before whilst it existed was never exposed because it wasn't in britain's interest to do so well yeah and at the same time especially um the point of not seeing the the other side i mean the british press completely demonised the enemies of the British Empire. You know, as, as we've already stated about um, with with people such as Churchill, 
you know, commenting and making such derogatory comments on on the way of life of these people um, who the British Army are fighting against. You know, it, it completely sort of creates a, a mindset of the British are the goods, whoever they're fighting against are always the bad. You know, as, as you said, you never see the, the, the true other side. I remember, yeah, I remember reading the article you mentioned before with Michelle Gordon, um, and she mentioned how uh, a lot of the atrocities during the battle were being blamed on the um, African and Sudanese forces that fought alongside Britain. Because yeah. um, they were a larger majority in the army. So by by statistics, they're going to perform more atrocities if everyone's performing atrocities. But the entire blame was based was, bla- was placed on them. And the same thing happened in the Zulu campaign. Um, the British basically allowed uh, rival tribes into Zululand to basically kill all the Zulus. And then the Britons said, well, it's not us that are killing them, it's these tribes, so we should let them, let them do it. Um, but that's not right. You know, they shouldn't be allowing atrocities like this to happen. They shouldn't be sitting back and watching it. But it's only recently we found out these, these facts. Well, yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, there were sort of cases where the press, uh, or at least some members of the press, um, were writing negative comments about the way in which the British acted, you know, as I, as I said, there was somebody, um, an observer who wrote that the battle was not a battle, but an execution, you know, but these people have been um, sort of pushed down and, and, and whatnot by not only censorship, but also just common um, pride that was in society of just literally just steamrolling their, their opinions and whatnot of, of what actually happened. Um, because, I mean, the, the accounts that, hap- that are there you know, they, they, they talk about the fact that the British were killing those who were surrendering or they were killing those who were wounded as well as completely destroying towns and villages, you know, and targeting food stores of those that they were fighting against. So there is evidence that some of the press were trying to be in somewhat or in some way objective, but it's been pushed down by the, the general consensus of the British being the good guys. Okay, so, um, but with all things considered, um, do we all agree then that attitudes towards uh, the Battle of Omdurman and British imperialism uh, have significantly changed throughout the 20th and 21st centuries? Yeah, yeah. I would definitely say so, yeah. That, that, that's a good summary. Yeah, I think so too. I agree. Beautiful. Okay, well, thank you very much for listening. Um, if you enjoyed our discussion, uh, you can go and visit our Instagram page, um, at Battle of Omdurman Pod, uh, where you can find more information on the insights uh, to the battles and its context. Um, But for now, from all of us here, goodbye.